This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Columbia Law School's new podcast, Defending the Planet. Join host Michael Girard as he and leading experts explore the question, can the law save the planet? Listen to the series on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to law.columbia.edu slash defending the planet for more. Welcome to Pro Se, Law Through 60's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, guys. And Alex Lawson. I'm here and I'm dry, thankfully. Which uh, is... That was not assured this week in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the Prospect Park is now, has several lakes instead of one lake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we are all safe and healthy, which is good. I mean, that's sort of, I saw someone tweeting today that I hope that they, they hoped we could get to a time where you don't start all emails with, I hope you are safe and healthy. <laughs> yes. Um, wow. That, that's that the would truth. be nice. Uh, but yeah, we are all dry and safe. So that's good. That's uh, something to aspire to there. Um, and we do have quite an interesting show for everybody. Um, obviously, we're going to get to the huge Supreme Court story that is in the news uh, uh, very soon. Uh, however, uh, later on, you'll hear from uh, Bill and I. We had uh, a very interesting chat with our own Dorothy Atkins, uh, who uh, is uh, out west covering uh, the trial or the forthcoming trial of former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes. Um, I think most people are familiar with the trials and tribulations of that company. And now Holmes is uh, about to f- is about to uh, undergo a fraud trial. So very interesting talk with Dorothy. Uh, she's been all over that for years now, and it's uh, finally coming to a head. So, but before then, let's let's dive into the big news from this week, which yes. was the big ruling by the Supreme Court. Yesterday on Wednesday, when they um, refused to block a new law in Texas that bans abortions after six weeks, the law also creates a novel private right of action for individuals to sue providers. It is pretty much the legal story, legal news story of the week. Um, the court split five to four with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the liberals in dissent. It's a big deal, and it raised, um, you know, the already sort of heated speculation about what the court might do with Roe v. Wade this fall. Yeah, this one's all over the news, but I, I think it's good to just sort of center us with the facts on the ground here. What exactly is in this law? So this law in Texas is called Senate Bill 8. Uh, we'll just call it SB 8 from here on out. The most basic thing to know is that it bans abortions when a fetal heartbeat is detected, which is at about six weeks. Um, That's substantially earlier than the standard of fetal viability outside the womb, which is about 22 to 24 weeks. That's the earliest under uh, existing Supreme Court precedents that um, states can, can currently ban abortion. Um, Abortion rights advocates say that a six-week ban prohibits about 90% of current abortions in Texas, since many people do not even know that they are pregnant up until that point. The other notable feature of SB8 that got a lot of discussion this week is the fact that it does not criminalize abortions, nor is it enforced by the government itself. Instead, it creates this unusual private cause of action for individuals to sue providers and 
anyone who aids and abets in these prohibited abortions um, after six weeks. So one thing you saw thrown around a lot in the discussion of this law is that that would perhaps cover an Uber driver who drove someone to an appointment. Other key pieces about this law, uh, an award of $10,000 is available for a prevailing plaintiff. And plaintiffs who who are bringing these kind of cases do not need to show a connection themselves to the abortion or that they suffered any harm from it. So it really creates, it makes it, um, you know, it creates an avenue for individuals to bring these cases. That was what really drew a lot of, uh, you know, eyebrow raising in like legal circles. Obviously, everyone's pretty familiar with state laws that move, you know, the actual deadline of the of the weeks of pregnancy forward or backward or, or whatever it might be. But yeah, the sort of creating incentivizing this like, you know, you know, watchdog campaign for a private right of action is like very unusual, as you say. Um, so that's why it was um, highly discussed. Um, as we talked about last week with the Remain in Mexico challenge, it is the season for emergency Supreme Court petitions. Let's talk a little bit about how we actually got to the high court in such short order here. So a group of abortion providers sued last month, uh, about two months after the law was passed in May, arguing that this statute was a clear violation of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, all the seminal legal precedents on the right to abortion. Um, They sought an order that would bar the law from going into effect while the case was being litigated, while these constitutional arguments were being litigated in court. Um, A federal district judge refused to dismiss the case and then had been planning to consider whether to issue such a an order blocking the law from going into effect. But last Friday, the Fifth Circuit, the Court of Appeals that oversees Texas, intervened in the case and canceled that hearing. Um, so the, the providers filed an emergency petition to the Supreme Court seeking to block the the enactment of this law. So that gets us up to the high court, but let's get into exactly what they did this week. So just before midnight uh, last night on Wednesday, the court uh, went ahead and refused to block SB 8 from taking effect. It took effect on Tuesday, so it is now in effect. The five-judge majority, all of the conservative justices minus the chief justice, said that the challengers had raised serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the law, and they stressed that they were not making a final ruling on the merits of the law. But what they said was that the challengers had failed to overcome what they called, quote, complex and novel antecedent procedural questions. So that's a very complicated way of circling back to what I what we were talking about before, which is this unusual private cause of action that is written into this law. Now, critics of this law say that was written into the law for the exact purpose of avoiding judicial review. So here's how here's how this sort of wrinkle works. Usually, a case like this would be filed against state officials who are tasked with carrying it out. A court would then be able to enjoin them from from enforcing the law. But since only private citizens can enforce SB 8, and that's important to note, it's not that this is a private private cause of action in addition to government Mm -hmm. officials doing it. Government officials are not allowed to enforce this law. So it's unclear who should be the target of such a lawsuit or when it can be filed. That was another thing, that they didn't know until one of these cases was filed under the law whether they could do it. So um, the current case named every state judge and county clerk in Texas, as well as a slew of other government officials and a private citizen. They tried to cover their bases and say these are all the people who, you know, that uh, that, that could be the defendants here. But what the Supreme Court said this week was that um, it, it was unclear whether or not any of the people that were named in the lawsuit could actually 
form a basis for such a case. The quote, federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws, not the laws themselves. And it is unclear whether the named defendants in this lawsuit can or will seek to enforce the Texas law against the applicants in a manner that might permit our intervention. So what they, you know, the, the, this per, this individual who was roped into the case, they filed an affidavit saying, I don't intend to yeah. enforce the law. So it created this procedural hurdle, which, again, I, I, I mentioned earlier, if you ask the critics of this law, that is exactly why that that aspect of the law was written the way that it was. We see this a lot with Supreme Court stuff that we cover where um, the outcomes sometimes turn on procedural questions that are not at all satisfying to answer the bigger question. Or in this case, there's allegations of gamesmanship and how the law was written. So what did the dissent say? I, I would imagine they had a bone to pick with with that reading of this law and what they could do. Yeah, all four dissenting justices wrote their own opinions. Justice Kagan had some interesting things to say about the use of the shadow docket, this, you know, these yep. non-briefed and sort of emergency cases that come down in the middle of the night. Justice Sotomayor said the court was burying its head in the sand was the big quote you saw from her um, about a law that she said was a, quote, flagrantly unconstitutional law engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights and evade judicial scrutiny. But I thought the most interesting dissent came from Chief Justice John Roberts, who is a member of the court's conservative wing, and you th- you you might think would would have sided with the majority here, but he said that this law in Texas was unprecedented um, in how it had created this private cause of action and that, that it was insulating the law from judicial review. And he came out very strongly in favor of staying this law and and freezing it and letting the case play out um, without disrupting the status quo. And and he said that he wanted to, you know, he wanted the court to really consider whether a state can, quote, avoid responsibility for its laws in such a manner, which I thought was a very interesting quote. So where does that leave us here? I mean, obviously, this is, as we've pretty thoroughly explained here, this is not a ruling on the merits of this law. Um, where does that leave us with regard to this law? And I know that the court is always sort of there. There are other abortion issues um, that that are awaiting action by the court. Where are we at? Yeah, I mean, in terms of this particular statute, the law went into effect on Tuesday and it remains in effect. Lawsuits can be filed by individuals against abortion providers or those who aid and abet them. I'm sure that we will have more coverage as those kind of cases start to be filed. Um, This lawsuit will continue to be litigated toward a merits ruling. All this did was say, we're not going to hit pause on the law. We're not going to grant you this emergency remedy. Obviously, that's a big deal in terms of the way that the world actually functions, but it it was not a merits ruling, as you said. Also, presumably someone who is sued under SB8, a provider or someone who is abetting them, they could also challenge this a bit more squarely uh, right. and avoid some of the procedural issues that were highlighted by SCOTUS this week. Um, but in, in a bigger sense, all eyes, I think, will now turn to a case called Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is a case granted this spring over a Mississippi law that bans abortion at about 15 weeks. So it would similarly... Um, ban abortion sort of earlier than than the standing precedent of Roe v. Wade would uh, allow for. So that case has been court watchers have sort of, you know, interpreted that case as squarely taking aim at Roe v. Wade and, and the cases that came after it. 
you have to think that today's ruling will only increase speculation about how the court's now six to three conservative majority will weigh those longstanding precedents going forward. All right. Next, we have some interesting news on the COVID front and specifically the COVID vaccine uh, front, because uh, here in New York, uh, this is we are one of several places now that has vaccine mandates to uh, dine inside of a restaurant or various other public places. And I think as vaccine mandates like that become more common, I think it's fair to assume that so, too, will the efforts to get around them by forging COVID documents, uh, vaccine cards, things like that. Um, you see that pop up in the news here and there. And I think an important question for us is what sort of the legal like law enforcement push against that might look like. And we got sort of an early indication of that um, this week as the Manhattan DA charged several members of what they claim is this what is basically a fake vaccination card ring operating out of New York, uh, catering mostly to uh, frontline essential workers. So it's a a pretty interesting development uh, here this week. I mean, you hate to, you know, hear about this, but I guess it was inevitable that we would get vaccine card rings. Um, But like you say, we want to talk about the actual charges here. So what are they charging these people with? So they were they were rolled out by the like I say, the district attorney. Uh, Cy Vance's office and uh, his office charged two women. Their names are Jasmine Clifford and Nadeza Barkley uh, with basically felony forgery and misdemeanor conspiracy charges for allegedly selling fake COVID-19 vaccine cards for 200 bucks a pop and also charging an additional $250 per person to place people inside New York State's uh, official like digital vaccine registry. If you if you booked your appointment sort of through the state, um, you are in an official registry. So they were charging people extra to put them in there in addition to the cards. Um, so according to the DA, Clifford mostly operated the ring through her Instagram account, which has the handle, I'm not joking here, anti-vax mama. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of nice. lot, lot of subtlety in the uh, alleged <laughs> alias is there or whatever you want to call it. And that Barkley, the other woman that was charged, gained access to the state's database where she entered these names through her employment at a clinic in Long Island. Um, basically gave her she just sort of surreptitiously entered these people's names into the database that hadn't actually gotten the vaccine. In addition to those two who are painted as the alleged ringleaders here, Vance's office also charged 13 of their customers, the the, the buyers of these documents, um, who all work in essential service settings like hospitals, uh, medical and nursing schools, nursing homes, things like that. So that sort of is uh, what, what obviously drew the attention of the authorities here. You know, as a guy who bought a fake ID in Times <laughs> Square in 2006... <laughs> Um, I would Statute say statute of limitations on that. Two hundred. Uh, I'm not really sure. <laughs> That's true. I yeah. I've just outed myself. Two hundred yeah. seems like a like a high price. I think I paid about eighty five dollars for for my <laughs> fake ID, and I was able to drink with it. I don't know that that. You, well, I guess a, an anti vax card. Anyway, we're getting off track here. <laughs> what can, it accomplishes what can we ex- a lot of the same functions. What can yeah. we expect going forward from these uh, from these charges here? 
Yeah, um, it's it, it, yeah that that is sort of a higher rate than maybe the going rate for a two thousand whatever five fake ID was going to get you in New York. But it's still a relatively small amount of money. You know, it's two hundred bucks to get a card, sort of one off or whatever. And we'll see where the prosecution of this specific case goes. Charges were just filed this week, so there's not much more to say than what the DA's office has charged. Interestingly enough, um, Clifford is still at large, not yet in custody. Um, so we'll. You should keep an eye on that if this case is interesting to you. Uh, Barkley's attorney told our own Frank Runyon on Tuesday that, quote, my client has great faith in the judicial system. And after a thorough and detailed investigation, she believes that she will be vindicated and that justice will prevail. Um, on a bigger level, I thought it was interesting. Vance said something interesting when he unrolled, uh, rolled out these charges here. He said that one-off prosecutions like the thing like the thing that he is doing aren't really going to be able to fix the problem. He himself called it like a whack-a-mole approach, which is honestly something you often hear critics say of prosecutions like this. It was interesting to hear him use that terminology to describe his own thing. Um, but he obviously called for a lot of public-private cooperation here, specifically asking companies like Facebook, which owns Instagram, where a lot of this was taking place, to crack down on this kind of activity when it becomes readily apparent to them. And Facebook actually uh, gave Frank a pretty uh, detailed statement on the matter. Here is the quote. We prohibit anyone from buying or selling fake or even genuine COVID-19 vaccine cards. We removed Miss Clifford's account at the beginning of August for breaking our rules, and we will review any other accounts that might be doing the same thing. We appreciate the DA's work on this matter, and we'll remove this content whenever we find it. So Vance was very clear to state that um, it's it's going to take a village somewhat because this they, they clearly expect this to be a, a very widespread problem. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like this may be just the canary in the coal mine for for actions like this. Um, I know New York has some pretty tight rules about where wh what you can get in to do um, yeah. only if you have a vaccine uh, and proof of that. So it makes sense we'd start in New York. But a lot of other jurisdictions and employers are also mandating vaccines. So mm -hmm. have we seen this happen in other places as well? Uh, yeah, a couple. Uh, j there's been a couple little one-offs. One thing that was interesting to me was in in July, the uh, the 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 feds got on this. The DOJ charged um, a naturopathic doctor in in California, which is sort of the term of art for like alternative medicine, but it is a state licensed profession. They charged a doctor there with selling sort of fake immunization, what they called pellets, and also for forging vaccine cards. Um, that's I think a little more eyebrow raising just in the context of this is someone who is a state licensed healthcare provider who's getting in on the action here. So that's just one other example. I would say it's probably too soon to say how um, sort of extensive this problem might become and how, you know, state and federal resources might be devoted to cracking down on it. But I think just through these couple of examples here, got an early picture of what it might start to look like if it gains some more traction. Once again, we wanted to remind you that this week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Columbia Law School's Defending the Planet, a new podcast about how the law can help confront the global climate crisis. Listen to Defending the Planet on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go to law.columbia.edu slash defendingtheplanet for more. 
The meteoric rise and spectacular fall of blood-testing startup Theranos drew national headlines. But was this a case of misguided Silicon Valley overambition, or was it outright fraud? That is the central question in the long-awaited criminal trial of former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes, which is set to kick off in California next week. Law360's Dorothy Atkins has been all over this story for several years, and she joins us this week to break down what we can expect at trial. Welcome back to the show, Dorothy. Thanks for having me. We're so glad to have you here. There's so much to go over, um, and I just want to get right into it. This is a story, like I say, that grabbed a bunch of headlines, um, but uh, now we're about to go to trial over it, and I think it's important to examine exactly what this case is all about, what's being alleged here, and what it looks like. Yeah, so uh, this this all surrounds uh, the company Theranos, uh, which grew in uh, early the early two thousands and uh, ultimately to its peak in twenty fifteen um, to be valued at around ten billion dollars. The company itself pitched it pitched itself as a uh, company that could do blood tests based on a single drop of blood, uh, which is very appealing to many of us who, who don't. <laughs> like needles exactly. Um, but the whole fallout from it came from the revelations that were re- first disclosed in, um, or first questioned, I guess, in the Wall Street Journal's reporting that this technology doesn't actually work, that you can't do a, an assortment of blood tests based on a single drop of blood, no matter yeah. how much you want to avoid needles. <laughs> um, so that's really kind of the the start of how this, of where we are today. So um, prosecutors bring these charges. What are they accusing uh, these Theranos executives? Because we've mentioned Elizabeth Holmes, but obviously there's another defendant here. What are the charges that that are at play here? Yeah, so the prosecutors allege um, Elizabeth Holmes, who is the CEO, and her um, the top two executive, uh, Sonny Balwani, defrauded patients and investors out of uh, millions over the years with uh, omissions and misstatements basically claiming that this technology could do something that it's purportedly impossible to do. Um, So they're facing, um, on the one hand, uh, charges, I think Elizabeth Holmes is facing 12 charges in total. Uh, Ten of those are are wire fraud counts and two are conspiracy counts. Um, And there are are basically two classes of victims here. One is the patient, one of the patients and the other is, uh, investors. And that, that could be, according to the attorneys I've spoken to, that could be a, a legal strategy on the part of prosecutors because investors are not necessarily as sympathetic, um, as patients who, uh, may have, you know, gone in to get these blood tests and got bogus pregnancy results or HIV results. Um, and, we expect that at least a few of these patients will be testifying during trial. So it sounds like a pretty straightforward uh, task at hand. They have, I mean, they are, they are saying that, you know, this is fraud because this, this stuff didn't do this technology did not do what they said it did. How exactly do we think they're going to go about proving that as far as the prosecution goes? Yeah, they have uh, various kind of buckets of evidence, if you will, uh, to show the jury. Um, one big bucket of evidence are uh, are these text messages exchanges between Balwani and Holmes during the time of the alleged fraud. And it, it there was a big pretrial battle where Holmes's defense team was trying to keep these text messages out of trial. Yeah. 
um, because obviously they will show her state of mind um, at the time. But the judge didn't buy it for the most part, and he's really kicked down, uh, kicked the can down the road, uh, and on a lot of these pretrial battles uh, to decide during trial what what is allowed in and what what's excluded. But these text messages, uh, among them, uh, are are at least one text message where Balwani uh, calls the invention, this blood test device, um, a disaster zone. Um, during right around uh, 2014 2015 when regulators were doing inspections of the company so the the those are going to be coming in they will also be showing kind of her relationship um with Balwani uh which is uh kind of ripe for both sides to kind of take p- pick apart during trial well that's and that's a great place for us to pivot to let's talk a little bit about the uh, defense strategy here for Holmes and her attorneys um I know there like you just mentioned a lot of it has to do with the relationship between Holmes and Balwani and um, so walk us through the broad strategy and how they might make their case right so the defense has um, basically has to prove that well the prosecutors have to prove that Elizabeth Holmes had mens rea or intent um, and knowledge of the fraud at the time of the fraud. Um, so she actually intended to defraud investors and patients. And one of her uh, defense strategies appears to be that um, she's claiming that she was controlled and abused by Balwani, who was um, 19 years her, her senior and who uh, she became uh, romantically involved with at some point during the uh, founding of Theranos. These allegations are pretty severe, and they were all unveiled really a, a few days ago, right before trial, um, when uh, documents were unsealed. And basically, Elizabeth Holmes is claiming that um, Balwani abused her, threw things at her, controlled her text messages, emails, um, a lot of uh, the financial decisions that she was making regarding the company. So during trial, there, there's going to be um, quite a bit of uh, testimony regarding that, uh, both from her own psychiatrist and also um, psychiatrist and a psychologist that uh, has been hired by prosecutors to do their own independent uh, mental examination of homes. Um, so that's one of her defenses. Another is um, that she was receiving, you know, the advice of her board members and uh, attorneys at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this isn't just, you know, kind of people she found on the street who were advising her about the company. It was right. You, know, you have um, yeah. former secretary, defense secretary, uh, James Mattis, uh, Henry uh, Kissinger. So these were high profile uh, people who were sitting on the board and theoretically advising her. I think that gives, a, gives us a good picture of sort of um, what the two sides are going to be wrangling over here. And especially with the abuse allegations, like you say, it's a, that's, such a, that's such a jolt in what's already been um, kind of an insane case. Um, but uh, there's already been a little bit of intrigue underway here in the early stages during jury selection, which I know you've been all over. Um, any color you care to share with us on that? I know you've been uh, in court every day and that's been, uh, sounds like it's been a little bit of a scene over there. Yeah, it's been quite the circus. I have I have covered many of these trials and let me tell you, it has been 
a rat race trying to get into the courtroom every morning. Um, you know, part of it has to do with the fact that the court has restricted seating due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and obviously during jury selection, there are many jurors that take seats uh, in the courtroom. But um, the, just trying to get into the building has been yeah. uh, a story in and of itself. And then during jury selection, you know, half the time uh, the judge spent probing prospective jurors on their forms of media that they that they consume. Um, and it was really on stark display how different uh, different generations of uh, people read the news. But one common thread throughout is that everybody um, had heard of Theranos and Holmes. One one juror in particular that stuck out in my mind uh, said that she doesn't hadn't read anything about it, but she um, saw some memes, some Holmes related memes, and <laughs> and and that was the the extent of her knowledge about it. <laughs> Voir dire is really a peer is, is really a peek into humanity. That yeah, that, that that's where this stuff always comes out. <laughs> I mean, memes are, memes are the way that I consume most of my media. So. Um, uh, so okay, we you know we uh, on the Pro Se podcast try to avoid prognosticating about the outcome of trials. It's you know who who knows how this is going to go. We have a pretty good understanding of what the two different sides are going to argue. But do you have a, do you have a general sense about the strength of this case that prosecutors are bringing against Holmes? I mean, what have experts told you in terms of how this case sort of stacks up against the typical fraud case? Yeah, you know, it was surprisingly enough, uh, a lot of experts have said that this is really an uphill battle for prosecutors. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was also surprised by that. Um, just in, I think in part because uh, of the board and how uh, experienced board members were who were advising Theranos at the time. Um, also, this relationship with Balwani kind of throws a wrench in, in prosecutor's case. Uh, Balwani himself uh, is also facing similar charges, but he'll uh, face trial in January. And he, he and Holmes had separately fought uh, to sever their cases because he thought that the evidence against him would that would be entered into the Holmes trial would be too damning. So he got his second second uh his his separate trial but uh one one thing that will work against prosecutors likely is that you know Holmes will be accusing this person who won't actually be in court he won't be testifying at any point so it's the empty chair defense um mm -hmm. So it, it's definitely not a slam dunk, according to the legal experts I've spoken to um, on, on behalf of uh, the prosecutor's case. But on the other other hand, there's also extensive um, statements and uh, evidence that's been recorded in the record that prosecutors will rely on to, to prove that Holmes uh, knew what she was doing. So I don't think it's a clear win either way. It's a fascinating case. You've done great uh, work for us on it so far, and I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. Thanks for uh, coming on Pro Se, Dorothy. Really enjoyed the talk. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dorothy. Guys, great show today, but I think we're about out of time for everything, so let's uh, wrap it up and get out of here. Yeah, didn't want to do that without giving our regular uh, shout out to the Pro Se Movie Club. I hope everybody is enjoying that as we, um, you know, keep keep up with that uh, very fun project for all of us. Just this week, we published the Liar Liar episode. 
that uh, was a laugh riot, much like uh, much like the film itself, I think. And uh, keep an eye out for next week. We're going to be talking about A Time to Kill, which was also sort of a laugh riot in <laughs> yeah. a, it, that uh, movie an unintentional defies, way. Yeah, it almost defies um, categorization, that movie. It's just got everything in it. Yeah, you mean like a legal drama that's also sort of an action movie that's also sort of a meme? It's, it's got a romance plot line. It's really got everything you could ever want in a movie. And also every giant actor from the 90s appears in the movie. Yeah, we had sort of a we had sort of a collective, I don't know, chilly-ish reception, but it was a good but but it was a good chat regardless. It was an interesting dissection of like why movies like this work and sometimes don't work. So we believe, definitely stay tuned for that one. We believe the movie deserves to die and we hope it rots in hell. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, on that note, let's uh finally wrap up this edition of Pro Se. Thanks for being with me, guys. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Dorothy Atkins, and contributing reporters, Jimmy Hoover and Frank Runyon. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us a written review wherever you're listening. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about any of the things we've talked about today, go on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.